Good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day again. I have the privilege of reading our scripture passage for this morning. It's found in page 907 of your pew Bible, and we'll be reading John 21, 15 through 25. John 21, 15 through 25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was, he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the privilege of, of gathering and hearing your word preached, expounded. And Lord, um, prepare our hearts to listen, Lord. Uh, The call is to follow you, Lord. And so often we stand at a distance and we seek to admire you, uh, to maybe look and say, that's a good man. But Lord, we, we know the call is the narrow road. And Lord, without your spirit and without the transformation of the cross, Lord, we, we cannot follow you, Lord. And Lord, we know, uh, that John also wrote in his epistle, Lord, that, um, that these were written so that we might know we have eternal life. So, Lord, I pray you'd open ears uh, of those who don't know you this morning, that they might follow you truly, Lord. And, Lord, for us who do trust in you, that we may know more deeply of our assurance of eternal life. We thank you, and we ask you, bless Larry as he comes and brings the word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. 
Jesus is more wonderful than you can imagine. That's where the Gospel of John lands. We've, we've spent just under 70 sermons considering it. That has stretched out over a while, three and a half years, if I'm not mistaken. A lot's changed in our world in three and a half years. But the Jesus who we meet in this gospel, he has not changed. And he's more wonderful than you can imagine. I, th I think that's the point John's making in the last verse of this book. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I don't think he means for you to be speculating at that point about, like, if you just diary 33 years of life and everything that he did and put that all on paper, and does that really fit? I don't think that's the point. The point is Jesus is more wonderful than you can imagine. There's a whole lot more glory here, John is essentially saying to us, than I've been able to put down in the roughly 15,000 word document that we call the Gospel of John. I just think of what we've read in John's Gospel concerning Jesus. He is the Word, the one who existed in the beginning before there was anything, the Word who then became flesh and dwelt among us, whose glory we have seen. He is the one through whom all things were made. He's the only begotten Son. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Comforter. He is the king of the Jews. He is the bread of life, the light of the world, the great unchangeable I am. He is the door for the sheep. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. He's the true vine. In the words of Thomas that we considered a few Sundays ago, he is our Lord and our God. And if we were to just pull back the lens from our study of John's gospel and think about who Jesus is more broadly, we might say that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the Christ. He is the second Adam. He is the faithful and the true, the alpha and the omega, the bright morning star. He is the almighty one, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the beloved. He's the bridegroom, the cornerstone, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is our mediator, the mighty one, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, who at the same time is the one who has been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all his companions. He is our redeemer and our rock and our risen Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the just one, the judge of the living and the dead. He is the Savior, the Son of the Most High, the Son of Man. He is the one by whom and for whom all things 
were created, the one in whom all things hold together. He is the amen, the fulfillment of all God's promises. He is Eve's promised offspring. He is the root of David. He is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is the Lord of glory, the Lord of righteousness, the Lord of lords, and the Lord of life. He has been seated at the Father's right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's just, bare, that's just the backside of his glory. We've not begun to fathom all that Jesus is for us and all that we will one day see when we are freed from the shackles of this world to worship at his feet and look upon him face to face in the unending splendor and glory of the new heavens and the new earth. But our call right now, as we wait eagerly for that coming day, the call now, as Matt pointed out in his prayer just a moment ago, is that we follow him. I I do believe that is the key call in this passage. We came to those words twice in our passage. Follow me, Jesus said to Peter, verse 19, and then again in verse 22. And it is specifically a call to Peter... But it has implication and it has application for all of us who would claim to be a Christian, a disciple. That's what a disciple is, is a follower of Jesus. And we know this same call to follow Jesus is given not just to Peter, but to all those disciples. Back in chapter 10 of John's gospel, as Jesus was talking about those sheep that he had come to lay down his life for, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So we want to think this morning a little bit in our last sermon on the Gospel of John, hopefully not ever, but in this particular series of sermons, we want to consider three observations from the passage about what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is driven by love. It is directed towards the sheep of Jesus, and it goes all the way with him and for him. I'm not crazy about those three points. As there's, I, like, I, I think there's good stuff to be said there. I wasn't crazy about that, but that's what's all like. It's Sunday morning. I had to say something. <laughs> Following Jesus is love-driven. It's, it's, we'll say, we could say it's church-shaped. It's church-influenced, oriented, and it goes all the way. They're each really important. I'll say that, biblically. Not just because I thought of them. They're really important. So I do hope the consideration of these matters will go beyond this morning, uh, even as this sermon and this series of sermons come to a close. I pray for you, I have prayed for you, that our thinking about these things would provide increased clarity for you on what it means to follow Jesus and deepened conviction to do that wholeheartedly. So first, following Jesus is love-driven. We want to locate ourselves here in this text, just reorient ourselves to where we are. The disciples have finished a breakfast for the ages. They have had breakfast with the risen Christ. That's what we're told about there at the beginning of verse 15. And 
it seems like all seven disciples who were there on the beach by the Sea of Tiberias are still there gathered after the meal when Jesus begins to have this conversation with Peter. And there's, a obvious, there's an obvious repetition to this conversation. Right? Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So Peter here in this passage, he's being charged, right? He's being commissioned, we might say recommissioned, to follow Jesus, to serve him in a particular way. And as that recommissioning and that restoration is happening, he's being asked, do you love me? Love is what fuels the disciples' obedience to Jesus. We know that because of what Jesus said earlier recorded in chapter 14. If you love me, Jesus said, he was talking not just to Peter, he was just talking about discipleship in general. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So following Jesus is driven, obeying him is driven, it's motivated by love for Jesus. But there is more happening in this particular exchange between Jesus and Peter than just that simple point. That's a very important point, uh, but there's more going on than just that. The, the background of this threefold question, I trust many of you know this, and we're thinking about this maybe as you read the passage, as you heard Matt read the passage. The background of those three questions is the three-time denial of Jesus that Peter had ashamedly been guilty of on the night that Jesus, well, on the day that Jesus was crucified, right? Peter, and I won't read the verses to you, but you can read them back in chapter 13 if you want. Jesus had been talking about going away, and, and Peter was like, what is this? What do you mean? Where are you going? And, and, and Peter was very boastful. He was very clear and decisive. I'm not going to, I'm ready to go with you to death. Jesus said, you're ready, you're ready to go with me to death. Before the rooster crows uh, three times, you're going to deny me three times. He had boasted that he would lay down his life. He seemed to indicate, at least we know from Matthew 26, verse 33, that even if all the other disciples fall away, I'm ready to die with you. I'm not going to fall away. And yet when the time came, we read about it in chapter 18 of John, Peter came up small. He denied three times that he even knew Jesus in the midst of Jesus' trial, and he abandoned Jesus in fear and cowardice. And now Jesus, having died for Peter's denial, having prayed for his preservation from the enemy's attacks, now Jesus is restoring Peter, and he's reestablishing his role in serving Jesus, and he wants Peter to remember that denial. That's, that's what I conclude from the three questions. They're meant to call to Peter's mind those three times that he had denied Jesus. You see there in verse 17 uh, that it says, when Jesus asked the third time, do you love me? It said Peter was grieved. Why would he have been particularly grieved that third time 
Well, we're not told it explicitly, but I do believe this is the case. I submit it to you that he was particularly grieved on that third occasion because he was thinking about those three denials of the Lord Jesus. I think when he heard that question for the third time, he would have thought about that sting of hearing the rooster crow, that shame of his great denial, even in the face of his boastful presumption. And so here's Jesus after that denial, after his death, after his resurrection, saying, Peter, I have work for you to do. Your denial of me, your failure of me has not disqualified you from my service. I'm recommissioning you. Follow me. We'll get to feed my sheep. But I don't want you to forget what happened. I don't want you to forget what you did. You have failed, Peter. He actually doesn't use the word Peter, did you? He says Simon, son of John. I don't know how much to make of this. Different commentators report. Maybe he doesn't call him Peter there because you know that he was given the name Peter because Peter meant what? Rock. He had not been very rock-like. So maybe that's why he doesn't use Peter there. He keeps saying Simon, son of John. You have failed. And you have failed in every way that you promised you wouldn't. And I want that before you, Peter. I wonder if that sounds cruel to you. Is it cruel, do you think, to, to purge from an individual every trace of prideful boasting from someone as they prepare to serve Christ and to remind him that the entryway into God's kingdom and God's service is forgiveness? To put to put his commissioning and his going to serve Jesus on a foundation of grace, to remind a person that it's only by grace, through faith, not your own doing, that you have received forgiveness and commissioning so that therefore there is nothing to boast about? I don't think that's cruel. Uh, There is a real question being posed here to Peter about his love for Jesus. It is love for Jesus that's going to be vital for Peter in carrying out the calling that Jesus has for him, even unto death. But when I said that following Jesus was love-driven, I did not only mean that our obedience is fueled by our love for him, but that the sparks of our love for him are kindled in the life-giving sin-forgiving, soul-transforming conflagration of the love of Christ for us. That's what we're being reminded of here in this exchange between Jesus and Peter. This exchange, three denials followed by three questions to renew that love and reestablish that, that restoration and that relationship and that service. In a sense, that's the story, not just of Peter, but of every, every disciple. The circumstances of our sin and our denial certainly are different from Peter's, but each one of us has abandoned and betrayed and denied the loving Lord of life who made us in his image to magnify and honor his name. By nature, each one of us has loved ourselves supremely, not Jesus supremely. That is the very essence and nature of sin. Jesus commands us to love him with all our hearts and souls and might, and yet we have failed him in this, this, and we have incurred his judgment 
As a result, what we deserve from Jesus is eternal condemnation. As John puts it in the book of Revelation, to drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger to be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. That's what you and I should have from him because we've not loved him as we ought. But God is love. And he loved us when we were so profoundly unlovely, when we were his sworn enemies, God the Father sent Jesus his Son. And the Son, the Lamb of God, willingly came into the world to rescue us from the judgment that we deserved for our failure to love him as we ought. And he did that by absorbing in his own body on the cross the punishment for our sins. He did that for all who would believe. If you are here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus, the call upon you today is to become a disciple of Jesus. It is to confess you have failed to love Jesus supremely with your whole heart and you deserve to be punished by him for that because of how worthy he is of your praise and admiration and thanks. And he is holding out mercy to you today. You should not presume upon it for day after day after day. Today, he's having mercy upon you. He is calling you to repent of your sin, to turn from loving yourself supremely, to rely upon Jesus, to trust in his sacrifice for your forgiveness and to receive adoption into his family today. If you're here and you've not done that, please do speak to someone today. Speak to me. I will be there out the back after the service. I would love to speak with you. I always do say it. I won't, I won't yell at you like this. I'll just, talk, I'll just talk very calmly to you. Or you could talk to someone who's sitting around you, someone maybe that you've come to church with. But that's the call upon you. Now, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have experienced this. Jesus rose. He demonstrated on the third day his victory over sin for all who repent and believe. And this changes, does it not? This changes our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with Jesus' commandments in an obvious and visible way. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 put it this way, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If we are counted among the number who Jesus died for, this passage is saying, then we are also counted among the number who are called, who are not only called, but who are controlled, who are constrained by Christ's love to live happily and heartily for him, to give ourselves to following him, not because we've got a slavish fear of punishment or because we're driven by some crushing effort to earn his favor. No, ours is intended to be a labor of love. That's why Jesus said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. It's a sacrificial service that we render to him from, that flows from the experience of such undeserved, amazing love that we have received from him. We make it our aim to please him. 
to quote another of Paul's letters in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We make it our aim to please him, not because we're afraid of being condemned if we don't, but because his love controls us. Because we've concluded he died for all. It's my joy. It's my desire. We know we lament how we fall short in it. But we love him. His love for us has awakened love for him. And we want now to live heartily for him to follow him. That's the dynamic that we sang of earlier. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. That's the fuel of following Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I'm not asking you that question to discourage you. I'm not asking that question to challenge you or to confront you. I mean, maybe some of you need a challenge in that regard, but I'm I'm asking you that question because I, I don't want you to lose sight of what a miracle has happened to you, what sheer sovereign grace it took if you could possibly have sung those words earlier in this service and actually meant it from the heart. That's a miracle if you sit here today with love for Jesus. You did not choose me, Jesus said back in chapter 15, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Our obedience to him is fueled by his love for us. We love because he first loved us, and we show our love then by going where he goes in faith, doing what he commands, and loving what he loves. And that brings us to our second observation about following Jesus. It is church-shaped, or whatever I said was the point there, but hopefully you'll understand what I mean. Love for Christ, right? That's what Jesus was asking Peter to affirm in those three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That love for Jesus then is intended to be demonstrated by love and care and concern for Christ's people, for his sheep, those whom he himself loves, right? Peter affirms three times. Not with the more than these business. He's dropped that. You know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. And three times Jesus responds, essentially, that the effect, the fruit of Peter's love for Jesus is to be expressed in his care for. It's used two different words there, feed and then tend and then feed again. But that love for Jesus is meant to be expressed in the care that Peter would have for Jesus' sheep, his church. Do you remember what uh, Paul said to the elders in Ephesus, just making that connection between sheep and church? Paul charged the Ephesian elders to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And how precious is that church? How precious are those sheep? uh, sheep? What did he do? How did he purchase them? Which he obtained, Acts 20, 28, which he obtained with his own blood. 
Now we can see again the specificity of this charge, especially to Peter in his role as an apostle. One of the ways that Peter was going to carry out this charge to feed Jesus' sheep was by being an apostle. That's not you and me. If there's any doubt about that, that's not you and me. But we are still richly fed by Peter's letters, aren't we not? We are nourished by who Christ is and what he has done and what he still promises to do for the people of God. And we can thank God that Peter did feed the sheep with those wonderful letters that he wrote that are preserved for us in the New Testament. But we know that this ministry of feeding the sheep does carry on beyond Peter and the apostles themselves because Peter himself in that first letter that bears his name exhorted the elders among him. He said, I exhort, 1 Peter 5, chapter 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock. And that word shepherd is the very same word that he uses with, with Peter in John chapter 21, tend, tend my sheep. He says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The flock of God feeds on the nourishment of God's word. Remember, Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so elders care for, they tend to, they feed and serve the precious, dearly loved people of God, the flock of Jesus, by feeding them, by teaching them, instructing them in the word of God. And I want to make sure you all hear that. It is a particular challenge for us elders. I don't see where all you all are. I got two of you there in the room. I don't remember. Okay. But anyway, we, there's another. We're missing a couple today. I know. We, we love these sheep best. We love you best when we feed you God's words. Because it's by God's words. Uh, young people, you want to know why I preach so long? I heard that's the question on the table. You want to know why I preach so long? I'll talk about it more next Sunday in your Sunday school class. Because your life in Christ is created by and sustained by and nourished by and grown by God's words. That's why. Short answer, I'll give you more next Sunday. And I, and I, wanna, and I praise God for this congregation that you receive that instruction so gladly. In all the years that I have been serving as a pastor, I have been doing this for many years, and I have never want, once felt from this congregation or any of you individuals, and maybe you talk behind my back, I don't know. I have never once felt that uh, there's something deficient about me because I'm spending a lot of time studying God's word. I've never heard that. Why isn't he out with the people more? I do love it. I try to get out, but I'm, I, I, I spend a lot of time invested in teaching God's word, and I've never felt begrudged for that. And you are to be commended for the ways that you receive God's word. But this, this love, this call, this, this care, this tending to, this feeding, it's not just the work of apostles and pastors. In fact, we can say that every disciple of Jesus, as a basic and essential element of his or her following Jesus, has the responsibility and the privilege of caring for and supporting and investing in Christ's beloved sheep. And so you, you may, it's possible that maybe somebody among us who has this mindset, or maybe you've talked to people who have this mindset, you know, I'm good with Jesus, I, actually, I love Jesus, I'm happy 
to have Jesus, but I really can't stand the church. I have no interest in the church. Now, if somebody is in the room who's got that experience, I want to be very sensitive to you because you've probably experienced real hurt and pain that is probably very tragic that has led you to that point. So I would want to talk to you personally if you'd be willing to do that. But I do want to say that such a position, again, I want to be sensitive to it because of the hurt that you may have experienced. But in light of the word of God, such a position really is it's incompatible with what Jesus says about following him. How can someone love Jesus while being indifferent towards or hostile towards the thing that he loves? And it's not appropriate to call it the thing that he loves, right? These are, the, these are the sheep that he shed his blood for. How could you be indifferent to that? How could you want to keep them at arm's distance but have Jesus? John, in his first letter, he wrote, we know, I think you just mentioned 1 John, didn't you? And that assurance of having eternal life. In, in 1 John 3.14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because, and he's going to tell you, because he's going to give you a read. How do we know we've passed out of death into life? And it's not because of how thoroughly we can articulate Bible doctrine. It's not how loudly we sing or what what faces of delight and expression we have as we sing. It's not how extended our quiet times are. He says, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. There is, there is not a conceivable way for you to deeply love Jesus and not live a life that's given to loving Jesus' people. I didn't make that up. The apostle John didn't make that up. We got that from Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said. This was the night before he died for our sins. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for Christ. You, do you see the connection I'm making between the commissioning to Peter? Peter, you, you, you love me? Feed my sheep. Be about caring for, tending to the sheep. Christian, you, you, you love me? Love my people. Love for Christ is not measured by lovely words or lofty claims. I will never deny you. I'll go all the way to death with you. It's shown by a life devoted to those dearly loved people whom he has died for. And many, and again, so that, so that I'm not confused here, maybe some of you need a particular admonition. I'm not saying this to crack the whip and beat you up. This congregation is committed to doing that in some lovely, extraordinary ways. Okay, so I, I prayed for Carol. I don't know if Carol's in here right now. I can't, I, I didn't see her for sure. Um, I, and I don't get all the details about this, but I heard last night that there was a man, because Carol changed her phone number, and maybe the, the, the older directory didn't, had the wrong number, and now it's a newer number, and that this man keeps getting messages. And he's, he was getting irritated about it, I guess, is what I had heard. Well, you know what? I don't know about that man's irritation, but praise God that man is seeing that the people of God love Carol Porter in the midst of her pain. 
you love each other. With texts and notes and cards and with houses opened and with possession shares and cars just handed away and given to people, shoulders to weep on, prayers prayed, counsel given, visits to the ill or, or the elderly, rides given to doctor's appointments. You love each other. Praise God for how you demonstrate your love for Jesus in your care for his people. But I do think we can ask, at least, how am I doing with that? Practically, what does that look like in your life? That may be something to discuss over lunch this afternoon or sometime this week. What does this special love that we're to have for Christ's sheep as Jesus' disciples, what's that look like for you? How might you strategically grow in expressing that? Even, let's just say, this summer. How might you commit or recommit to loving and caring and serving the people whom he loves as an expression of your loving and following Jesus? That may be something you want to talk about. Ask a friend, perhaps ask a pastor. Perhaps pull out online one of those lists in the New Testament of those one another commandments. If you're wondering, I wouldn't know what to do. Well, Jesus is so kind to us. He's given us a whole lot of instruction about that. You just, just type in one another, and you just got all kinds of opportunity. We love Jesus. We show our obedience to Jesus by being about caring, his, caring for his people. Finally, uh, Peter's restored here. Okay, let's go back to Peter. He's being restored to service in Jesus' kingdom on a foundation of grace. His failure as I said earlier, has not disqualified his call. He's charged to show love to Jesus, especially in the care, the tending to, the feeding of Christ's precious sheep. And Peter, he says here at the end, and it's in a word to us as well, specific to Peter, but application for us, Peter, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you. To love me like this, it's going to cost you everything. It's even going to cost you your life. And that's what I was trying to get at when I said following Jesus goes all the way. Look again at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, he's, he's, I'll just pause there for a moment. Almost every commentary that I was able to look at indicated this is clearly a reference to stretching out of the hands, especially as a reference to crucifixion. He's telling Peter, you're going to die like me. And we have some record of that, particularly late in the first century, by a letter from a church father named Clement about Peter's crucifixion. Some dispute about whether he was crucified. You may have heard this tradition that he was crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to, to die in the same manner that his Lord is. There's a little bit more speculation about that. But Peter was crucified about maybe 30 to 35 years after Jesus spoke these words. And we're told right there that, Jesus, I mean, if we just had that statement without the, what we have in our Bible as a parenthetical statement there in verse 19, we would say, what does that mean? Well, it says he said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, you're going to die, Peter. It's going to be painful. Follow me. That's what I mean by following Jesus goes all the way. Have you considered 
I mean, I encourage us to pray this uh, along these lines. I did pray along these lines earlier in the pastoral prayer, how, how your death might glorify God. The manner in which Peter died was ultimately not a result of the fact that Emperor, Emperor Nero was a raging madman. That's not the ultimate reason why. The ultimate reason why is that Jesus had determined that it would be so. It's not just that Jesus knew it was going to happen. He said it was for a purpose. I'm telling you because this is the way you're going to glorify God. And again, as specific as that word is for Peter, we know that each one of us, Psalm 139, each one of us has been allotted a particular number of days. And it's part of our obedience to Jesus to prepare for how we will glorify him on that day. I, I loved the fact, I don't know if this was on the spot or if it was planned, that with, on that verse, verse 3 I think it is of my Jesus I love thee, he just stopped all those instruments so that we would be fixated on those words. I love thee in life and I love thee in death. Have you thought specifically and beyond a passing lyric in a song, have you given consideration to that? The apostles did. Paul said, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's just woven into the very fabric of our calling to follow Jesus in the first place, right? What did Jesus say? That, that broad invitation and call to, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Does, does that dying for Jesus, going all the way, when it's hard, when it's painful, when it's unjust, does that factor into your equation on what it means to follow Jesus? Will you still follow Jesus when he sees fit for his glory to have you experiencing sickness and sorrow and pain and death? Or will you look around at other people and wonder why it's not going that way for those people? That's, that's where Peter goes, right, here at the end. Peter turned, okay, so he gets this word. He gets this sobering word about his death, and he's called to follow Jesus, and it's hard to know exactly what to make of this question. But Peter's, again, I don't know what it would be like to hear that. Peter hears it and he goes, what about him? Now again, we don't know all the, it may be genuine, legitimate concern for John, who, who he loved, who was a companion of his. It seems as though there's something inappropriate about it because of what Jesus says to him, right? Peter said, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about making comparisons, Peter. Don't worry about looking around at others. You follow me. I've, got, I've called you to something. You follow me. That is one of the challenging realities about following Jesus together is that... Um, 
in the call, while, while following him all the way is, in fact, the call to every disciple, uh, the way in which that plays out in our lives is different, isn't it? Uh, some of us walk that path single, and others of us do it married. And, and some of us do it happily married, and, and others of us do it struggling where it's a challenge and a war just to stay faithful. And some of us follow him in, in a satisfying career path, which is very prosperous, and you've never had concern a day in your life about money. And, and others of us follow that path barely scraping by in a job that you can't stand. And, and some of you walk that path following Jesus healthy to a ripe old age and you die in your sleep and enter into glory. And others of you endure chronic, long-term, debilitating, wearying illness and pain. And some of you have, have supportive Christian families that build you up and nurture you, and others of you have been estranged from family members because of your devotion to Jesus. See, on and on we could go. Uh, moms, I think this is particularly a challenge for you moms, to be looking around at other moms. They say, well, her, kids, her kids are so respectful. Her kids are, are, are better behaved than mine. Her husband is more engaged than, than mine. Her health is so much better. She's able to do so much. And I, her, her home is so this. I said, stop worrying about all that. I mean, that's a weird happy Mother's Day. That's my happy. I pray for you. I love you. I do. I do love you. But just like, stop worrying about all that. You follow Jesus. He's called you to something, moms. You follow Jesus. That's not a word just for moms, of course. That's a call to all of us. We're so worried about looking around at other people. If you want to faithfully follow Jesus, don't be looking around at other people and compare yourself and your circumstances and your sufferings to other people. You follow him. Don't look around, but look at him, at what he is, at what he's done, at what he promises to do. We're right back to where we started here. I want to close just the way I started, that he's more wonderful than you can imagine. Jesus did more miracles than you know. He told more parables than you know. He preached more sermons than you know. He possesses more wisdom than you know. He displayed more power than you know. He is, he, his compassions are more abundant than you know. He is worthy of more honors than you know. He's deserving of more songs than you know. He suffered for sin more than you know. He loves sinners more than you know. He is committed to the good of his saints more than you know. I do think we can say of the person of Jesus himself what the hymn writer says of the love of God particularly when he wrote, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Beloved, that's our Jesus. Were every one of those things Jesus did to be written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So I'm going to conclude with a quote from J.C. Ryle. And I thought of this particularly as we come to the end of a series of sermons. 
He says, all, all things are growing older. The world is growing old. We ourselves are growing old. A few more summers, a few more winters, a few more sicknesses, a few more sorrows, a few more weddings, a few more funerals, a few more meetings, and a few more partings. So I was thinking here, a few more series of sermons. That's my addition. <laughs> and then what? Why the grass will be growing over our graves. That's where we're headed. Unless he comes, oh, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But if he, if he chooses to wait, that's where we're all headed. And until that day, beloved, let us be found faithful following Jesus. How deserving of praise. How deserving of honor. How deserving of a life poured out. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we ask for your help. Who is sufficient for these things? Who can, who can faithfully follow Jesus in and of our own strength? Not one of us here. But we thank you for his death on the cross, bearing the punishment that was due for our sin. We thank you for his triumphant resurrection and his ascension to heaven and his sending the Holy Spirit to be with us, to comfort us, to instruct us, to transform us. We thank you that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In Christ, what would have been completely impossible has become a reality. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We can follow Jesus. We thank you for that privilege. And we pray that you would work in us more and more by your spirit to help us walk worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you because surely we have not mined the depths of all that you are and all that you've done and all that you will be for us. So help us, Father. Conform us more to the likeness of our great majestic Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.